This is America's Webradio.com, the best in chat radio designed just for you. And welcome. Welcome to all our listeners out there today. I am Doug Dahlgren. This is the prologue on America's Web Radio. Now, this program is an introduction in most cases. Today, it's actually a reintroduction because our guest has been in the spotlight with her work for many years. As we begin this hour, I'd like to take just a minute to thank the special members of this audience who listen worldwide to the broadcast and the podcast versions of our show. It's those brave men and women of the armed forces of this country, those who protect us on a daily basis. We also want to include the first responders here at home, those police, fire, and EMTs who rush to our aid when we get our little tails in trouble. Thanks to each and every one of you for what you do for us and for this country. Now, our guest this hour was born in Memphis, Tennessee. She's lived in Alabama, Louisiana, Massachusetts, and currently in the Atlanta area of Georgia. A graduate of the University of Alabama, she's worked as a reporter, feature writer, and public relations for many national companies. Over the last 20 years, she's also been a gifted author, publishing eight books through two publishing companies and now her own self-published memoir, Writer, Writer, in which she shares the stories of her beloved grandmother, O.C. Nash. Her book, A Flower Blooms on Charlotte Street, was made into a feature film in 2003, something that all writers dream about. Titled The Adventures of O.C. Nash, the film premiered at the fabulous Fox Theater in Atlanta, Georgia, on June 1st of 2003. Now, that film launched the career of another Atlanta native, actress Skylar Day, who played the title role. The author, Myla McGraw-Prost, is here with us today, and she brings with her that latest novel, Writer, Writer. And this is your prologue. Writer, Writer is a memoir. It's written as a novel. Our author describes how she became the author and offers a bit of backstory that readers are always interested in hearing. There are also insights into the subject of her second book, It May Not Leave a Scar, as well as a view of movie making from inside the author's point of view. Writer Writer is a quick fun read, and the author of this novel, Milam McGraw-Prost, is with us this hour. Welcome, Milam, to the prologue. Thank you, Doug. I think you've told the whole story, so I guess we'll go so, out to lunch with so your wife now. <laughs> all right. Well, we're done then. Okay. Yeah. I have actually a few questions, so I hope you're ready. Shoot. Now, your writing career was actually born of a kitchen fire. Tell us a little bit about that. Okay. <laughs> I was a home ec major and a very inept home ec major. My, my goal was to go to the University of Alabama and learn how to cook and sew and do all those homey things, but... Uh, I was, after, whoops, what? Right into it there. Oh, okay. Sorry. I said I was an inept home ec major. I was also an inept technology person, so they just told me to move closer to the microphone. Can everybody hear me now? I hope so. All right. So, anyway, uh, I was told to live in this home management house, and one of my jobs was to cook a meal for my roommates that night and I decided I'd fry chicken what's more southern than frying chicken well I caught the home management house on fire I really did and I could remember the teacher I was alone and I remembered the teacher saying throw something white on it I could remember white and I was flour 
baking powder and everything I threw on it got nastier and nastier. And finally, I put out the fire with sweet tea. But uh, I then had met my husband now. I had met my future husband, and we were taking a speaking course. And I took this course with Jamie. I was also extremely shy at the time, Doug. And uh, I wouldn't let him come to class the day I gave my talk and told about the fire in the home management house kitchen. So he wasn't there, and he missed this terrible display. But the teacher looked at me, and he said, Miss McGraw, why are you majoring in home ec, and I said, Mr. Scarrett, I don't have any idea. And he said, I want you to major in journalism. And I was a very compliant young student. I said, okay. So I switched majors. And the rest is what became journalism, PR, newspapers, and the book. Well, now I'm not going to let you get off quite that easy because you were hesitant to go in there because of the typewriter. Isn't that right? Oh, you, you want you read that part too? Well, of course. Okay. Now, <laughs> this all goes back to my <laughs> inadequacies. That's that's what this whole story is. Yeah, I said, well, Mr. Scarrett, that's well and good, but I took typing in high school, actually at St. Pius here in Atlanta, and I was extremely nervous about the the keyboard. And I said, I I cannot type. I will not type. So I cannot major in journalism. Mr. Scarrett looked at me and he said. Miss McGraw, I tell you what, you seem to be a very creative person. I want to take a chance with you, so just come in and bring one of those composition tablets, and you can just write all your all your newspaper stories on the tablets. And I went, wow, that's easy. I can I can hold a pencil and write. So I went to my first class. It was in Woods Hall in. Um, in Tuscaloosa. It was an old Civil War building, and you went up rickety stairs to the second floor, and everything had porches. It was just the most wonderful place for a writer to to study. And I opened the creaky door of his classroom, and there I saw 12 desks and 12 typewriters. And he looked at me. He pulled his glasses down on the tip of his nose. He curled up his arms and his legs, and he said, gotcha. Now sit down and type. And I did. And there wasn't room for your tablet on the desk, was there? No. <laughs> I think in fear I dropped my tablet on the floor and it blew out the door. I'm not even sure what happened, but I, I learned to type. Well, now, you weren't really uh, afraid of, of telling stories or writing them because you'd been doing that longhand oh, on yeah. your tablet since you were six years old. Oh, yeah. And you were recognized in the second grade for a particular poem. What kind of an effect did that have I am so impressed, Doug, that you actually read my book. I cannot tell you how many people who have interviewed me have not read anything except the back cover. Thank you. (laughs) Applause, applause, applause. I appreciate that. It was called The Christmas Mouse, and I was in a school in Memphis, St. Agnes Academy, and we were K through 12, and there was a high school newspaper, and they gave some of the little kids like me a chance to write, and I wrote this, and all of a sudden here was the byline, Mary Mallon McGraw, A Christmas Mouse, and it was just that was the most wonderful thing I'd ever seen. So I was extremely excited and wanted bylines for the rest of my life. Off and running from there, right? Thank you. Yes. Oh, absolutely. Yes, yes. Now, some of your creative spirit also showed in these earlier stories that you told your friends. Uh, you told of misdeeds that didn't exist and punishments that didn't follow. That's right. <laughs> and yet you made all this up so kind of to, to get along with them? Or what's the story behind that? Well, I thought you were going to go to the ghost stories at... Uh, slumber parties. I was always a featured speaker at slumber parties. All the girls would roll up our hair on pink hard rollers. I'm looking at your wife. She probably remembers this. And then we'd tell scary, scary ghost stories. No, um, I was, I was the sad part, but the valiant part was I was born in a family 
I was an only child of an alcoholic mother and a daddy that traveled, and that's why my grandmother was so special to me, because she was always there. But um, I would go to play with friends, and we would get in trouble for various and sundry reasons, and they would be punished, and I would just go home. And I missed being punished, so if I did something and I wasn't caught, I never was caught. I rode my bicycle all over Memphis, Tennessee, and, you know, nobody really knew. Um, and I would pretend like I got in trouble, so I'd go to school the next Monday, and I'd go, oh, I did this, and gosh, I got in so much trouble, I'm grounded, whatever, because I wanted people to think I was disciplined. You were part of the group. Part of the group, exactly. 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 Now, go ahead, mention the ghost story. Tell us more about your childhood in Memphis. Do you want the wolf story? Wherever you want to go the with it. The this is your time. Go where you want to. That was truly... Uh, the scariest thing in the world. Um, we lived in Memphis, in uh, New Orleans, which is just one of my favorite places. And there's a lot about New Orleans in writer writer because I just I feel a real connection to that city. But New now Orleans, we're in New Orleans now. We're in New Orleans. How long were we in Memphis? We were in Memphis uh, from the time I was six until we moved here when I was a freshman in high school. But we were in New Orleans for four years. Okay. And that's where I met Criella Moon, who was our housekeeper. Yes. And I wrote a book called Criella's Moonbeam, which is uh, one of my favorite books. It was, it's a, a fiction about a person who writes books, which actually led to the real writer-writer. It's called Criella's Moonbeam. Uh, before I tell that story, I do want to say... I took down my website a couple of months ago because I thought it wasn't getting me anywhere. So if anybody wants to write to me about my books or buy a book, buy a signed copy. My guest room closet has copies of everything. They are welcome to uh, write me on my email address. And it is Milam, M-I-L-A-M, writes, W-R-I-T-E-S, books at gmail.com. Again, my first name is Milam, M-I-L-A-M, writesbooks at gmail.com. And for that, you can get a, an autographed book of any of my eight titles and ask questions and ask questions, personal questions of me. That's fine. I, I was talking to my writing partner, and she said she thought it was all right to do that. So. Well, it would be. While we're here, tell the folks where they can find these books other than emailing you. They're on Amazon. Where else? Well, that's what you tell me. I'm, I'm so excited. Doug told me today that my books are on Amazon. I'm thrilled to death. Uh, they are also available um, at Nook Book, Barnes & Noble, and um, what did I tell you? Oh, um, Smashwords. Smashwords. And, oh, uh, Kindle. 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 Okay, yeah, Kindle so, through Amazon. Yeah, so a lot of people like the electronic reading, and I think it's a good idea. Very too. good. And, again, folks, if you're interested in an autographed copy of any of Milam's work, you can email her at MilamWritesBooks at gmail.com. Yes. Okay, very good. Now, we were talking about Creole Moon. Creole she Moon. was your inspiration, or she one of them. She was awesome. She was a Creole lady who told me scary, scary stories, and I love them. She would tell me about the... We had an old bungalow house in Metairie in New Orleans, and she would be trying to put me to sleep in the afternoons, and she would say, Oh, that old coal bin monster's coming up the steps, and she'd do the walking like that. Now, Criola worked for the family, right? She was our housekeeper, okay. and okay. she took care of me. And I loved her. I loved this woman so much. Um, and then she would say, okay, little darling, you cuddle up, and we're going to go to sleep now. You to put your head on that pillow. It's time for your nap. Ooh, what I hear coming. 
and I'd snuggle up. I'd try to crawl inside of her, actually. And then she said, Oh, Miss Mary Milam, that, that old coal bin monster, he's coming up the stairs. Wait, he's in the hall. And my eyes were as big as this microphone, and all of a sudden she'd say, Coal bin monster, coal bin monster. And she'd grab me and she'd go, Gotcha! <laughs> oh my gosh, oh my gosh. And my grandmother got so mad at Criola Moon, she said she was possessed and she did voodoo and she told me all kinds of things. She was so mad at Criola Moon. How long were you around her? Four years, and I was really upset that Criola did not move to Memphis with us. My daddy was with Union Carbide, and he got transferred, and I was hysterical. My grandmother was thrilled. Uh, <laughs> so, she, so they didn't get along? No, she did not like, my grandmother did not like Criola scaring me, but I think Criola planted a creative scene, a seed in me that grew into the ghost stories I tell my friends and into the storytelling. And, and so when I wrote the book Criola's Moonbeam, I, fiction can replace things in your life, and I had Criola a friend of the family's forever. And it was a wonderful, in Criola's Moonbeam, I, had, I, I got to keep her. What and part of New Orleans were you in? Metairie. Metairie, mm-hmm. okay, it's right there. On the river, isn't it? We were near the river because we, we went to Lake Pontchartrain a lot for picnics and things. Okay, okay. Well, listen, we want to get back to all this, more about Criola Moon and more about your grandmother, because I think your grandmother is one of your largest inspirations and oh, remains so one, today. To so day. we're here on the prologue this morning, and we're tickled to death to have Milam McGraw-Prost with us, and we're talking about Writer, Writer. We're going to be back in just a couple of minutes. When four members of Congress all die within four months, each of their deaths appears to be from natural causes. But when mysterious messages begin to appear in the form of quotations from long-dead revolutionary heroes, one reporter sets out to prove the existence of a serial killer. His search discovers dark secrets and an assassin shielded by people who need the very services that only he can provide. The Sun Silas Rising, a novel by Doug Dahlgren. On Kindle or paperback through Amazon.com. Don't be hoodwinked by the left who wants you to believe the fairy tale that we can power America on butterflies, rainbows, and pixie dust. I'm Marita Noon. Get the truth about energy on my show, America's Voice for Energy, only on America's Web Radio. The disease of addiction is a life-altering challenge, not just for the person suffering its effects, but also for the family and friends who support and love the one caught in its grasp. What should be the course of treatment? Who is the best person to render treatment? And what is the best place to go for the care that is needed? We know that you want answers to these and many more questions. Call 770-696-9862 and speak to a representative of the Atlanta Healing Center. They can tailor a program specifically designed to address the needs of the person suffering with an addiction or give you guidance as to where that help may be found. Information is the key, and the trained staff at AHC is here to assist. If you wish, you can also get more information on the website located at www.AtlantaHealingCenter.com. This is America's AmericasWebRadio.com, the best in chat radio designed just for you. And we are back. Good morning again. This is Doug Dahlgren. We're on the prologue here at America's Web Radio. And we're just delighted to have with us this morning Milam McGraw-Prost. Am I saying that right? Say that for me. It's Probst, 
Probst? Yeah, you're good. We're um, going P-R-O-P-S-T. Yes. Excellent. What kind of name is that? Where? Oh, it's a terrible name. When we first got married, I tried to talk Jamie into taking my name because I told him Jamie McGraw sounds works. like an excellent golfer, maybe a Scottish <laughs> ring to it, maybe to improve his game. But he's the only son in his family, and he insisted that I go with Probst. I but bet. Malum Probst is a handful. I just uh, mouthful, I guess. Well, Dahlgren is a mouthful, too, yeah, for a lot of people. But that's <laughs> Swedish. I can explain it. Where does Probst come from? It's German, and it means keeper of the cathedral. Well, that's good. Yeah. That's a good name. All right. We were talking earlier about your inspiration as a child. One of those was a person who worked in the home, Mm -hmm. Criola Moon, and also another main inspiration to you was your grandmother. I adored her. Now, you called your grandmother B. Yes. (laughs) And her name was actually O.C. Nash Whitman. Yes. Uh, You know, that's an interesting name in itself. Where does O.C. come from? My grandmother was uh, supposed to be called Josie because she grew up in a farm in Mississippi, and Josie, Josie Nash was just a darling little name, a corruption of of Ossie Elizabeth, of uh, Josephine Elizabeth. And she had a brother who was a year older who's featured in the movie and certainly in the book, Ben. And he couldn't say J's when he was a little boy, so it came out Ossie. So it kind of stuck, and it was spelled O-C-I-E. And when she became a more sophisticated lady in Memphis, Tennessee, and she had the first permanent wave in Memphis and she drove a mobile convertible, she decided that she needed to add another E to it so she didn't sound like a little country girl from from, uh, rural Mississippi. So she added this wonderful E. And I have one of her signatures at home, and the E is so predominant that it looks almost like an L at the end. But I will tell you another thing. Her niece, uh, my grandmother was supposed to die when she was 26 years old. She had this lung condition called empyema, and her brother Fred, who's also in the book and in the movie, his wife was going to have a baby, and he said, if this baby's a girl, I want her named Osi because we're going to lose my little sister. And my gr- grandmother lived until she was 94. So, But the name was given to my cousin Osi, who is 100 years old, and I'm going to visit her soon for her birthday. Wonderful. And she has a great-granddaughter whose name is O.C., and she lives in New Hampshire. So we had an O.C. born in the 1800s, an O.C. born in the 1900s, and an O.C. born in New Hampshire in the 2000s, one every century. That's terrific. That's The, the problem I have, though, O.C. Nash Whitman, I don't see a B anywhere in there. Ah. Explain the B. My mother, who was quite a Southern character, Mary Catherine Whitman McGraw, for some odd reason, when she was a teenager, she changed. She stopped calling my grandmother mother or mom. I never heard her call her anything but Butch. Butch. And to me, that was very normal because our family's rather eccentric, and I thought, okay, Butch. But when I was a little girl, I couldn't get out the Butch, and so I started calling her B. Well, she probably appreciated that. I think she liked it. <laughs> but I can see I can see her coming in the house to visit Mama saying, hello, Butch, and I go, hi, B, and that's what it is. Odd name for a mother, I have to admit. Well, now, your inspirations were quite influential on you. Your mom, you've already mentioned, your mom had problems with alcohol. Had problems with alcohol. How long did that go on? (laughs) Okay. The first time I noticed, uh, I was probably somewhere between four and six, and my daddy was apologizing for my mother being in a bad mood one night, and and I guess she said some bad words that I hadn't heard before, and daddy said, 
honey, sometimes mommy speaks in French. Oh, wow. (laughs) And so then she, she... pretty serious drinker, although I, I always have to say, I was never hurt or nothing ever happened to me badly. I've, I've gone to these Al-Anon groups for years off and on, and people have terrible stories to tell. Mama just kind of neglected me. That, that was more it. She would go to bed early or whatever, and then I would go to my grandmother's, who was uh, in an apartment next to our house, and uh, we would. my grandmother never learned to cook, oddly, so we would have peanut butter and mayonnaise and tomato sandwiches, or her specialty was peanut butter relish and mayonnaise, all stirred together into a pate, and we would have those. And I thought they were delicious, and to this day, that is my go-to comfort food. Those who are just listening on the radio want to tell you, she actually (laughs) looks normal considering her diet and nutrition from the early. Absolutely. Absolutely. When I married my husband, she was a wonderful, Jamie's mother was a wonderful cook, and I'm going, oh, so this is a green bean. What is this thing? Oh, broccoli? Who knew? So uh, I was very lucky to marry into a normal family. But my family was great for creativity, and my mother loved me. There's no question about it. I will tell you this. When I wrote It May Not Leave a Scar, which is a fiction based on growing up in an alcoholic home, it freed me as a creative person to change the names and to give more uh, a deeper personality to the characters of my mother and father because as a fiction I could imagine them young and happy, and that made the book a better book, I think. But, um, oh, I've gotten off on a tangent. Go, go. But, um, oh, 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 you asked me how long my mother had actually been drinking. Mama fell and broke her hip sometime in the 80s, and one thing led to another. We were living here, and Mama was in Birmingham, and I ended up bringing her here. Um, When I went to the hospital, a neighbor called. Your mother's going to the hospital in an ambulance. We think her hip is broken. I thought, what am I going to do? I have three little kids. It was awful. It was just shocking. And uh, the surgeon was a friend of ours from the University of Alabama, and he came out into this waiting room. I was sitting there by myself, and all these other people were around for their patients, and he says, I'm sorry. And everybody looked at me like, oh, her mother must have died. And Edward said, she lived. (laughs) (laughs) So anyway, bottom line was it was the beginning of enormous healing. I brought her here. She pretty much stopped drinking. Um, she did not drink from the time she was 80 till she died at 84. And we built a wonderful relationship where my other friends' mothers were battling Alzheimer's or cancer or dying or whatever. I was, I, I was getting to know Mama, and I was getting to know what a, a fun person she was. It was awesome. So when I wrote It May Not Leave a Scar, my husband, Jamie, read it. He said, pretty good stuff. Pretty good yarn. I, I like it. But, honey, I think you ought to call it something else. And I said, what should I call it, Jamie? He said, I think you ought to call it Too Damn Old to Drink. Ooh. So maybe that's it. But anyway, I, I got won. my mama back. I, I think you won back. with your title. I, uh, that, that's a pretty good title there. You know, <laughs> we jumped ahead a little bit. I want to go back to uh, when mom got sober. I guess it was the first time. And your family moved to Atlanta. You were in high school. You mentioned St. Pius. Yes. Now, you moved without your beloved grandmother. Yes. That had to be a trauma. It was awful. Um, She moved to a little apartment in Memphis. um, I think it was 2186 Monroe, and our house in DeKalb County was 
2086. So she was 2186. I was 2086, Okawana Road. And she said, see, I'm only one number away from you. Isn't that wonderful? When, when Jamie went to Vietnam, too, she also said, little darling, don't worry. The Six-Day War has just gotten over, and Jamie will be back here in six days. So that was how my grandmother was. She could always perk me up. Always the positive influence. And that's why I wrote Charlotte Street. My children only knew her as this little old lady that lived in an apartment and and uh, was kind of tired. She was in her 90s, and I wanted to introduce my grandmother to my children as a younger person, but as I wrote it, she got younger and younger and younger, and all of a sudden, the first book, she's nine years old. And that visit that you had up there to, to see Grandma, that's where you actually started thinking about writing this book. Are you talking about when we went to Asheville uh, with North Carolina? Yes, yes. Uh, my grandmother, we were living in, in uh, Atlanta on Okawana Road, and my grandmother came on a Greyhound bus to visit. She walked in the door. Mama said, hi, Butch, we're going to Asheville. We're going to find your old house at 66 Charlotte Street. My grandmother rolled her eyes and said, whatever you say, Mary Catherine. And the three of us got in the car, and we went to Asheville, and uh, I saw the house. And that's why it's called The Flower Blooms on Charlotte Street, because the house had then been turned into a florist shop. And the rest is history. And the rest is history. Now, I want to transition just a bit. You mentioned Jamie a couple of times. Where and how did you meet Jamie Prost? At a pledge swap at the University of Alabama. And uh, we didn't like each other much at first. He thought I was snooty, and I thought he was a redneck. I cannot believe I just said that on radio. That's terrible. (laughs) (laughs) Anyway, either he improved or I I changed, but I kept seeing him with other cute girls, Doug, and I thought, hmm, I think I missed something. And then apparently he had seen me with some other young men, and he asked me out on a date maybe six months later, and we fell in love, and we got married about... Ooh, three weeks after we graduated from Alabama. Outstanding. Well, now you've got a nice family now. You've got three grown children yep. and two grandsons. Yes. Tell us about them. Oh, do we have another hour? Well, you know, <laughs> we can take it after the break, but we've got a couple of minutes now. Yeah. Well, our daughter is our first child, and we adopted her, and she is lovely, and she just got married. Uh, to a young man named Mark, and we adore him. Our son William has been married a long time, and he has two little boys that are, and they're here. And our son Jay is here too. So, and he works for Dalton Box Company. If anybody needs any boxes, call Jay Probst. <laughs> I cannot believe I said that either. Well, <laughs> I am a right loose ahead. cannon, though. <laughs> what do your grandsons think of your books? Well, they're, some of the books are dedicated to them. Mm-hmm. The little one, who's 10, is very uh, anxious for another movie to be made because Lofton, as an eight-month-old child, he's now 13, got to be in the movie. He's Midway through the movie, you'll see this darling couple on a train with a little baby boy in a dress, and that would be the eldest grandson. So Emmett wants another movie made, so he can He wants like a shot. Brother. He okay. wants to be in a movie, too. All right. We'll have to see who we can call. But Emmett is my PR guy. He goes to Christ the King, and every class he talks the teacher into having his mama come and do a talk on creative writing. So I've done it since he was in kindergarten. Oh, how fun is that? <laughs> now, are any, any other members of the family, are they into writing? I'm an only child, and I don't know where this Well, I mean, your from. family. I th- well, our son Jay, the youngest one with Dalton mm-hmm. Box Company, uh, started off as a musician at the University of Georgia. He played music for 18 years, and finally he said, I'm not Mick Jagger, Mom. I think I better get a real job. <laughs> and uh, William, who is, pr- pr- I think a bo- there's a book in William. 
he was a, an English major at Washington and Lee, where he met his Abigail, his darling wife. And he started trying to write a book when the boys were little, and he said, Mom, writing books is a lot harder than I thought. But both he and Abby are voracious readers, and I think that there is a book in William. I really do. And I have told many people when I talk to writing groups that reading is the best preparation for writing. And I didn't start writing until I was 47, not seriously writing books. So Oglethorpe University, Carol Lee Lorenzo, teacher, excellent. Person. We're going to get into that. We're oh, okay. going to get into that. I think it's getting close to time for another break. We're here this morning having a fascinating time with Milam McGraw-Prost and just having a big time talking about Writer, Writer, which really uh, goes back and encapsulates what happened and how the other books came about, including the movie. So we're going to get back to all of this in just a couple of minutes. Again, my name's Doug Dahlgren. You're listening to The Prologue on America's Web Radio. When four members of Congress all die within four months, each of their deaths appears to be from natural causes. But when mysterious messages begin to appear in the form of quotations from long-dead revolutionary heroes, one reporter sets out to prove the existence of a serial killer. His search discovers dark secrets and an assassin shielded by people who need the very services that only he can provide. The Sun Silas Rising, a novel by Doug Dahlgren. On Kindle or paperback through Amazon.com. This is Daryl Pullis inviting you to listen to America's Homegrown Veggie Show right here every Saturday morning at 10 Eastern Time. Great guests, great tips, and valuable information about growing your own vegetables, fruits, and herbs. Don't be hoodwinked by the left who wants you to believe the fairy tale that we can power America on butterflies, rainbows, and pixie dust. I'm Marita Noon. Get the truth about energy on my show, America's Voice for Energy, only on America's Web Radio. Watchdog is a term given an organization like the United States Justice Foundation, which since 1979 has been watching out and, when necessary, taking the appropriate action from testifying to litigating to protect our constitutional rights. USJF, a nonprofit organization, is nationally recognized not only as a watchdog, but many in the government, as well as those involved in legal cases, have also called the USJF a bulldog for the tenacious approach in their presentation and proof of what is right. Find out more at www.usjf.net. Support USJF as they support you. This is America's Webradio.com. The best in chat radio, designed just for you. And welcome back. Again, my name is Doug Dahlgren. We're here on America's Web Radio. Our guest on the prologue this morning is Milam McGraw-Prost. We've been talking about her book. We've been talking about how she became a writer. And mainly we've been talking about how you became a writer of novels, which are very good, excellent, fun reads. But Milam was around writing for quite a while before that. Uh, in fact... You knew your way around uh, much before the novels came out. You had worked for two newspapers in different stints. Did you enjoy those jobs? I, I was thinking about our interview this morning. By the way, I want to tell you, for all you writers out there, you need to get Doug to interview you. He is absolutely the easiest interview I've ever had. He's charming and into it and seems to ask all the right questions. So that's a commercial for Doug. Um, my Check is in the mail. Oh, good, good. <laughs> um, I, if I were going to tell you the truth, 
I think my two favorite jobs were my first two jobs. One was for the Birmingham News in Birmingham, Alabama. I loved that job. I loved the people I worked with, the excitement of going out to interview people. Um, I just, it was just great. And then uh, when my husband returned from Vietnam, we went up, we was uh, sent to Springfield, Massachusetts, and I worked for a newspaper up there, and that was a very different, even more exciting job for me because um, they seemed to like my southern take on things, and I got to do lots of of marvelous interviews. I, I got to uh, interview, for example, they had the first black cotillion, and here goes this little southern person trying to sound like she's from Massachusetts interviewing all the debutantes. And it was just a very uh, broadening experience for me. I loved it. My boss was a lady named Claire who felt like Jamie and I were too intelligent to go back south, so she spent much of our year up there convincing me to, to stay in Massachusetts by sending us on wonderful weekend trips to New Hampshire and New York and Boston, just all the time trying to recruit us. But we came home. You know why, Doug? Because when we called home, our parents sounded like Mammy and Pappy Yoakum, and we said, it's time to go home. <laughs> it's time to go home. We're getting snooty losing, up here. L- losing your accent. Yeah, we are, really. I have some Yankee relatives, and uh, it's hard to listen to them. It's like watching that movie Fargo. Oh. <laughs> it's, a, <laughs> it's a real trip. Well, I loved it up there. First of all, you could get everywhere easily. You could be in New York. We'd go on a bus and be in New York in an hour, I guess. It was a, it was a marvelous place to be, especially because he had been away for a whole year, and we kind of got to know each other again oh, off yeah. on our own. It was yeah. great. You also had some work with uh, with magazines. You were a freelance writer. And I did you, that. I and did. you had a story that was published here in Atlanta, in the Atlanta Magazine. Um, Nestle? Oh, Nestle. Yes. Nestle. Yes, about our... See, there's two ways you can go with that. Nestle yeah, or Nestle? I thought you were going to tell the story about uh, the uh, Dr. Otis Smith that helped get the funding for the um, Margaret Mitchell House. Well, I have you here to do that. Okay. Um, He was the first black pediatrician in Atlanta, and he found out after the fact that Margaret Mitchell had paid for his education to go to medical school. He was a Morehouse man. And so when they were getting ready to renovate the Margaret Mitchell House, he took me into what looked like ruins, and we walked around, and he talked about why... Miss Mitchell, he called her, was so important, and I think he had been a doctor for 30 years when he found out that Margaret Mitchell had not only paid for his education anonymously, but for, I think, 20 Morehouse men. Wow. And that's why he wanted to honor her by bringing her house back, and that's what the Margaret Mitchell Wonderful Center is now on Peachtree Street. So. Oh, indeed. Mm-hmm. Wonderful. That's a great but he story. Took, he took my picture. He said, you've been taking my picture Milam, I want to take your picture. And he had me stand right by the window where Margaret Mitchell sat in her apartment and wrote Gone with the Wind. And he said, now, I'm wishing you luck with your new book. And that was what about two years later became A Flower Blooms on Charlotte Street. So Dr. Smith was quite a um, supporter of mine. Super. Excellent. Now, what's it like to be a freelance writer for a magazine? What do you do? Well, I haven't done it in so long, I almost don't remember, but I would just send in story ideas to various magazines and see if they would pick up on it. Did you have a particular contact at the magazine, or did you no, send it in by? No, it it's like in the old days when we sent our stories to random publishers, and you mm-hmm. just hoped for the best, and you'd send it an idea a time or a story at a time, and sometimes it would stick, maybe one out of ten. That's the thing I learned 
from my my teacher, Carol Lee Lorenzo, who won the Flannery O'Connor Award, by the way. She said, writing and success is 10% talent and 90% persistence. And if anything, I learned persistence because you're going to get lots of rejection slips. I don't think you have gotten rejection slips. We haven't talked with each other enough, but I had a phone book stack of uh, rejection. And when uh, when um, the movie was coming out, I burned them. I did. I took well, them all out yeah. and put them in the barbecue pit and burned them. Good for you. And now I'm kind of sad because I wish I had them back now well, <laughs> as proof. <laughs> it's like playing tennis. You need people pat you on the head, and then you need people tell you you ain't worth anything oh. every now and then. You know. So somewhere along the way, you decided to take a course, a non-credited course at Oglethorpe University. You alluded to that just a few minutes ago. Yes. How did that come about, and what did that do for you? I was real active. We had children in three different schools, and I was real active doing PTA volunteer work, which I really loved. I was usually the person who wrote whatever we had to write, so I was always writing something. But I thought, well, two of them were in college now. Amanda was at College of Charleston, and William was at WNL, and Jay was in high school, and I thought, I've got to find something to do when these these kids are really, really gone. So I took a, what was to be a six-week course at Oglethorpe University, one of those continuing ed courses. You pay $100 and you go one night a week. Well, there were several of us in there, and uh, I'm thinking of t- two or three. I don't know if you'd need the names, but anyway, we all ended up getting published in one way or another. But the first night of class, Carol Lee said, if you're here because you want to be rich and famous, you might as well leave. But if you're here because you want to write, please stay. Well, we were all so taken with her that we kept paying over and over. We took that six weeks course, I think, for two years. It was crazy. And But we all liked each other. And then one day, I think one of us said, you know, we could just go to lunch and, and not yeah. have to pay all this money. So, so that's what we did. But I was the first one to get published, so they all came to my book signing. And oh, it was excellent. a big Wonderful. darn deal. Well, now, I'm sure that at the time, and we've talked about all the other influences and inspirations that you had, that all the ideas for Charlotte Street are boiling up in your head, mm-hmm. but there was something to do with an accident yep. involving a son and in his recovery that actually spurred you to start writing. Absolutely. Tell us about that. Well, William will shoot me for this because he hates me to talk about it, but he was a sophomore at, the, um, at Washington and Lee, and uh, he had never been on a skateboard before, but the house he lived in outside of Lexington had one of those skateboard drums, and so William was a football player there, and he was always sort of, out, you know, very athletic and very talented and fast and all this. And, well, how hard can it be to skateboard? So, honestly, <laughs> he must have gone up in the drum. I don't even like to think about that. But I get a call. I came home from work at my PR job, and uh, the phone was ringing about 6 o'clock at night, and this voice on the other end of the phone says, Is this Mrs. Probst? And I said, Yes. And he says, This is Dr. Dick from Stonewall Jackson Hospital. And I said, I don't know which member of Phi Delta Theta this is, (laughs) but I'm not finding this funny. And he said, Mrs. Probst, your son is in the hospital. I said, enough. He said, Mrs. Probst, your son is in the hospital. His foot has been turned around backwards. Mm. Oh, my goodness. So my husband was coming in from work. I don't remember doing anything but grabbing a tablet a yellow legal tablet, some pajamas, a toothbrush, and a change of clothes, and I headed out to drive to Virginia that night. And um, 
I remember thinking, he'll never run again. He'll. This is terrible. The doctor really did kind of go into grim details about his foot and how much pain he was in and the Achilles tendon and all kinds of stuff. And I really literally drove all night. I was nuts. And um, the, the morning I was getting close, I was in Roanoke, the sun came up behind these three crosses up on a hill. And it was just beautiful. And I remember thinking, it's going to be all right. So I walked in the hospital, and I got there just in time. They were taking William to surgery, and he says, Mom, I really messed up. And I said, well, we're going to get you fixed. And uh, they wheeled him down the hall, and I, it was awful. You know, I just I just remember thinking, this is the worst thing. Here, here this fine athlete is being wheeled, and nothing. we don't know what's going to happen. Well, that was the first time I met Abigail, his wife-to-be, seven years later, I guess it was. She came in and said, Mrs. Probst, into the waiting room, I'm Abigail Kane. I'm a friend of your son's. I brought you some flowers, and I thought I would sit with you while William's in surgery. And it was just wonderful, and I thought, wow. And I'd heard about her from one of William's friends, and I said, oh, wait, I know who you are. You're the prettiest girl at Washington and Lee. She is going to be mortified if she hears this. I hope she does. (laughs) But anyway, uh, so there we sat in the waiting room and then in the hospital and the recovery. And we went to a motel because he lived in a hard-to-get-to house. So we stayed in a motel for a couple of days. And he was mainly sleeping. The one wonderful thing was when Dr. Dick came out and shook my hand, he says the Achilles tendon snapped back into place. Oh, wow. And the fact was he did play football the next year. And the next year after that, and then he played football in Germany. So he might have slowed up a little bit, but not much. But he did land himself a wife because she was one of the volunteers that took him around to all his classes. He was on crutches for, I think, six or eight months. And he, he bounced back, and, and he did really well. But So I had my tablet, and I was sitting there. And what do you do? You look at your child and watch him suffer. And I thought, well, I've got to get my mind out of this, and he's asleep. So I started writing the story. Charlotte Street initially was going to be a a picture book with a little girl riding a train to visit and to move in with her aunt because her mother had died. It was just going to be this charming little period picture book of O.C. riding the train to Asheville from Mississippi. And I started thinking, I kind of dug into her character, and I thought, wonder what it was like for her to say goodbye to her family. Wonder what that felt like. She had lost her mother to the measles epidemic the year before. She was nine years old. She had only lived on this farm with her mother and daddy and her two brothers. And I poured the pain of William's foot into this this character. And I wrote the scene where she got on the train to leave her family and go 24 hours across Tennessee to Asheville. So the emotion was there. The emotion was there. And so the next two weeks later, I go to class, and and Carol Lee was, I was shy. I've told you that before. And I was too embarrassed to read my own work. I, I couldn't do it. So I always had her read it. And so Carol Lee's sitting there reading, and she's reading about O.C. saying goodbye to her daddy. And one of the lines, I think, is uh, Papa says, O.C., Put your chin up, and O.C. says, Papa, I can't because if I do, the, the tears will run down my face and wet my dress. And so Carol Lee's reading that, and she's crying, and I'm thinking, boy, this must really be bad, making the teacher cry. And everybody else in the class was crying. And she said, I said, that bad? And she said, 
that good. She said, forget the picture book. You're going to write a novel. And that's where it was born. William's Outstanding. Foot. William's Foot. Outstanding. David, are we near a break? Close enough? Okay. We're going to go ahead and take a break here because I don't want to interrupt the chain and get into something new. We are here. Folks, if you're not fascinated already listening to Milam, you will be. This is an amazing book. She's an amazing author, and her story is just one that you really want to get into and read for yourself. The book is called Writer, Writer, and it's available out there. We're going to be back with more from Milam Prost on the prologue in just a couple of minutes. When four members of Congress all die within four months, each of their deaths appears to be from natural causes. But when mysterious messages begin to appear in the form of quotations from long-dead revolutionary heroes, one reporter sets out to prove the existence of a serial killer. His search discovers dark secrets and an assassin shielded by people who need the very services that only he can provide. The Sun Silas Rising, a novel by Doug Dahlgren. On Kindle or paperback through Amazon.com. Did you miss a show that you really wanted to hear? All of our programs are available for download on AmericasWebRadio.com and on iTunes. You can listen to your favorite programs on AmericasWebRadio.com anytime you like. Affordable health insurance was the promise of Obamacare. But for many, the government mandate caused more problems than it solved. This is Dr. Elena George from Medicine on Call, and I want to tell you about a truly affordable alternative allowed under Obamacare, Liberty HealthShare. Liberty HealthShare bypasses doctor and hospital panels, giving you the freedom to choose, and with a maximum of $500 out-of-pocket per person and 100% coverage up to $1 million per year per occurrence, you can rest assured knowing you and your family are protected. Coverage starts as low as $107 per month and also includes dental, vision, pharmacy, and holistic care. Liberty HealthShare puts you back in charge of your health. Visit them online at libertyoncall.org. Again, for a true affordable alternative to Obamacare, visit libertyoncall.org or call toll-free 1-800-714-6993 today. This is AmericasWebRadio.com, the best in chat radio designed just for you. And we are back. We're here on the prologue this morning with Milam Prost. We've been talking about primarily her book, Writer, Writer, but we've also been talking about what that book does for you. It tells you about the backstory to A Flower Blooms. Give me the book. A Flower Blooms on Charlotte Street. Excuse me for that. Uh, And the story of her grandmother. And also in Writer, Writer is the story telling you a little bit, an explanation about Milam's mother and uh, the second book, It May Not Leave a Scar. And this is one, uh, that book on its own is for uh, folks who have had to live with a parent who had a bout or maybe a long fight with alcoholism and the effects that it has on everybody around them, I believe. Uh, So this one book, Writer, Writer, goes into making you thirsty for more. And so it's out there. These books are there, and they're available to you. I want to ask you, Milam, your process for research. Real quickly, what did you do for your research for Charlotte Street? Was there a lot of family history that you were able to collect and use, or or what did you do? No. (laughs) I am the laziest person on the planet. I don't like to do research. We went to, uh, Jamie and I went to Asheville and spent a couple of days, and I picked up some books and whatnot. But mainly, 
I make up stuff, Doug. <laughs> so I try to, to, I stirred the character of my grandmother. She was actually kind of stoic and quiet, but I stirred the, my children, all three of them, little aspects of them, into a very bubbly, uh, brave little girl that got into all kinds of mischief. And uh, I do know that my grandmother did get into some mischief, mischief, mischief too, but uh, I, I pretty much. Um, made stuff up. The new book that I'm doing with Jackie White, Jacqueline Weldon White, is uh, a book that required lots of research, and she asked me to write this book with her. We follow Sherman's March to the Sea. It's called Sidetracked because we got lost everywhere we went trying to find <laughs> Sherman's March to the Sea. I remember one day she called me and she said, Oh my gosh, they took two routes. And I said, Okay, so we'll zigzag from here to Savannah. But she was a she's a researcher and she did a magnificent job getting all the historical facts and I, I guess I was the comic relief that book's coming out in April we want so. you to come back both of you can come back and let's talk oh, about it it'll be fun I'm sure that trip took you through Sandersville yes we we went all kinds of places we had William Rawlings on the show about three weeks oh, ago yes he's a yeah. he's a great guy he'd talk to you about Sherman's March to the Sea <laughs> he really right. Well, ours is, um, it, it more made the map of where we were going to go because we were looking for uh, odd historic places that may or may not have had anything to do with the Civil War. Like, for example, I know you're very patriotic here. We went to the historic marker for the poppy lady, the lady that uh, inspired all those Flanders Fields plastic poppies that we mm-hmm. buy. Is it Veterans Day? Mm-hmm. Veterans Day at the, the grocery store. So we went to her historic marker and we went to the Burr Rabbit Museum and just we kind of used the March to the Sea as a, a guidelines of where we were going. And it's a funny book and it's a poignant book and we talk about slavery and we talk about um, lighter subjects and uh, it's a great book. It's coming out April Fool's Day. How, how do you like that? That's pretty it's, good. It's a Mercer, Mercer University Press. And we again, we hope to have you and Jackie back here. I'll come if and she we'll wants. we'll talk about it. Listen, I want to real quick Rejections. You mentioned rejections. Everybody gets when they submit them to the publishers. Now, rejections quit with you when you heard from Mercer University Press. And not only that, but they made a very uh, large policy change when they accepted your book. Tell us about that real quick. Well, um, first of all, I was visiting my grandmother's grave in Memphis, Tennessee, and I was explaining to her that my writer's group made me lop the E off of O.C., they said, it's as a children's book, it's O-C-I-E-E is too hard to pronounce. So the whole class, including the teacher, agreed to lop off the E. So I am sitting at my grandmother's grave in Memphis explaining to her headstone why I am misspelling her name in this book. My grandmother probably wasn't happy because when I got back to my daddy's house, he said, Honey, Jay called, said a publisher had called you and wants to talk to you right away. Here's his number. It was Mark Jolly of Mercer University Press. Hello, Dr. Jolly. I'm scared to death. He said, hello. He said, I got your manuscript. I love it. I love it. The story of O.C. Nash. It is wonderful. And I thought he was going to publish it. And he says, however, we don't publish fiction. Mercer has never published fiction. So I just call to encourage you about your your work and just to let you know that someday I, I know I'm going to read this book to my son, Patrick. And I went, oh, wow, well, thank you. And then uncharacteristically, I said, do you know the name of any other publishers? 
maybe somebody I could send the book to because I need somebody to open a door. And he gave me some names of Paul. And we maintained a friendship for several months, I want to even say two years. And so one Friday afternoon at 5 o'clock, he called me, and he says, Hey, this is Mark. Had any luck? And I said, No, but I'm still trying. Persistence, you remember, Doug, is 90% of it. And he says, well, I think I've got some news for you. Mercer's never published a fiction before, but we're going to now. We're going to publish O.C. How about that? And the main thing I wanted him to do was add the extra E. So Put it it's back. O-C-I-E-E Nash. <laughs> yes. Now, they asked you to make one slight change to the manuscript is the way you envisioned it. You had it as a children's story. Oh. it's It was going to – it was kind of – both. It was supposed to be mainly for girls and all ages of women. I was thinking of my friends as people I wanted to see my mom. So uh, it was written kind of for all ages. The big change, Doug, came when the two women, Amy McGarry and Kristen McGarry, these two sisters, called. Well, I went to an art show. Beverly Key is a friend of mine here in Atlanta. Her husband is Tom Key, the famous actor. And she is a wonderful, wonderful painter. And so I went to her art show. And uh, it's such a long story. I'm not going to bore you with it now. But, but at the none of this sh- is boring. None the, of this is boring. The clock is running out on us. I morning. know. I'm worried about that. Anyway, the bottom line was I was at the art show. Jamie saw a friend of his. He was with Amy and Kristen McGarry, and uh, Jamie said, "This is my wife." And for some reason, I started a real good friendship, particularly with Kristen McGarry. And sent her a copy of Charlotte Street. She and her sister took me out to lunch and said, we want to make it a movie. Oh, my gosh. Yes. And it was at their father's suggestion. They were doing a movie about Flannery O'Connor at the time. And they decided to switch horses and do a children's book and make it a Disney film. So, actually, the book that was written for all women became uh, more of a Disney-type film for all boys and girls and then after that my stories became more children friendly so the last three books are not only children friendly but they are not just girl stories but they're boy stories too because meanwhile the grandchildren were being born we had two grandsons so there's some male characters in the last three so that's the five OC books are a combination of all kinds of things girls boys adults just when you think of Disney that's what my books are well, the movie itself is quite a big deal for anybody that, that, that writes. I mean, this, this is a lady who has a tremendous book, won all kinds of awards on its own, and then to be turned into a movie, that's just, I mean, you know, I'm tempted to ask, gosh, how did that feel? But I'm not going to oh, do that. Oh, it felt great. I'm sure. <laughs> um, and, and really, you had the premiere here in Atlanta at the Fox. Fox Theater. How, how big Open is that? Open summer season. Uh, a young actress from Atlanta at the time, Skylar Day, that was her introduction. She, Yeah, she was a gymnast, and there were 500 little girls from California because Amy and Kristen had been in California for a long time, and they moved back to Georgia. And uh, they screen-tested, I think it was 200 little girls, Savannah, Atlanta, Los Angeles, and Skylar just was one of the first, and she just kept bouncing up as this fabulous and young lady. 11 years later, she's still in the industry? She is. Movie. She's been okay. on NCIS, and she writes Christian music, and she performs, and she was in Parenthood, and she's, she's really quite something. I see her every Christmas. She comes home every Christmas, and she still calls me her granddaughter. Wonderful. The, the movie was called The Adventures of O.C. Nash. O.C. Nash, and it starred Keith Carradine and Mayor Willingham. Yes. Now, that's cool. It was very cool. <laughs> it, it, it's still out there on DVD. Yes. And is it streaming on TV, the, the streaming networks? or 
I don't know. I hope oh, so. Oh, okay. Yeah. Okay. Well, we hope we hope it will be. Those folks out there, get on to it. Get going. I've got to take a minute and mention your crew. Now, I had the pleasure of meeting your exclusive posse. Yes. <laughs> and uh, one of them called you the, the little mafia, the book mafia. Uh, that was really? Dale. Yes. Oh, dear. <laughs> <laughs> or a click. But anyhow... Uh, I had the pleasure of being invited up to Brazelton, Georgia, several weeks ago. And I met a group of folks who, Milam was one, but it was Jacqueline Jackie White, Mr. Jackie K. Cooper, Fran Stewart, Dale Kramer, and, of course, Milam Prost. This is quite a group of folks, and you guys are a little bit of a Mercer University author's pack. Yes, we are. Real quick, tell us how fun that is. It is absolutely marvelous. We keep thinking we're going to take our show on the road, but Jackie Cooper is such a good speaker that we're afraid he would overwhelm us and he would be the superstar and we'd all be left in his dust. I need you to lean on him for me. I want him to come on the show. He needs to. to, I'd love to interview him. Um, (laughs) He is hilarious. You you like talking about folks who find exciting new careers later on in life. Is that crew, is that an example of that? Well, they actually probably are, but um, Writer Writer started off as a tribute to a friend of ours uh, who had lost a daughter, and he was an old telephone company man, and he started a a group called uh, the Amelia Center to comfort people in the Alabama area who had lost children. And one of the fundraisers they did was to uh, make a a calendar with... uh, flowers on it, specifically sunflowers, because Amelia loved the sunflowers, and now he is a very well-regarded photographer, because everybody said, George, George Elliott is his name, uh, George, your sunflowers are beautiful, and now he and his wife, Jerry, drive all over the world, all over the United States, taking pictures, and his pictures are for sale. So, Rider Rider was going to be about him and two or three other people who had turned tragedy or end of career or whatever into creative activity. And uh, my editor, a wonderful woman, Letitia Schweitzer is her name, read the book. She read my manuscript, asked me to come over, handed me a glass of wine, and he said, she says, we're going to talk. And I said, what? And she said, I want you to write about just you. And I said, Tish, I'm not going to write about just me. And she said, well, yeah, you are. And then I found that quote the next morning. The, uh, oh, where is it? Well, anyway. Uh, life is a tragedy. Uh, oh, life yes. is a tragedy when seen in close up, but a comedy in long shot uh, by that famous uh, spokesman, Charlie Chaplin. <laughs> but I read that and I thought, okay, because my way of dealing with things that are sad usually come out in some kind of a crazy, funny story because that's what I do. Listen, this has been tremendous. We just don't, have, we're going to have to get a clock stretcher. Can we do that, David? We need we need to stretch the time sometime. This has been amazing. Well, I was afraid Listen, I wouldn't have enough to say. Oh, that doesn't. That's not the way it works. <laughs> At any rate, Milam Prost, thank you so much for being here. Just really appreciate it. This has been fun. I want other folks to know about you more. Uh, Milam writes books at gmail.com dot com. That's the email. Reach out to her and get it going. I think so, you can Google me too. I think I'm sure you can. Yeah. Yes, folks. I had more to say, but I tell you what, this has been fun. Till next time, I want you to take care of yourselves and each other. Read a book. If it's not one of Milam's, maybe you'll look at one of mine. And I'll see you all again in just 167 hours oh, for the prologue. <laughs> see you next time. This is America's Webradio.com, the best in chat radio designed just for you.